Welcome to the first episode in 2019 of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Welcome back, everybody. I'm back. We're all back. The holidays are over. We have a new year. We have a new Congress. New chaos. <laughs> There's always something going on. But um, I had a great holiday season, great Christmas, great New Year's. I hope you guys did too. Um, we had lots of fun in my house and my with my family. And then we went down to Key West to bring in the new year. And anyone who's ever been to Key West knows how quirky and fun it is there on top of just being a beautiful place. So my husband and I, my mom and my parents, we were having a great time down in Key West. I posted some pictures on Instagram so you guys can go check those out. Uh, we were having a blast. So I had a great New Year. I hope you did too. And wishing everybody a happy, healthy New Year. So here's to 2019. I think it's going to be a um, an eventful one. <laughs> because the presidential election is going to start to ramp up already. I know. We just feel like the, we feel like the last one isn't over, right? It's like perpetual campaign season. But uh, 2020 is right around the corner, folks. And you're going to start to see Democrats declaring... We've already seen, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro and others starting to put their markers down. We're still waiting with bated breath about Joe Biden, who I hope runs, who I would support. Um, yes, I am a Republican, but I would still support Joe Biden. Uh, he's a good and decent guy, and I think he could beat Trump. I mean, I'd agree with all of his policies, but at this point, um, we need to get Trump out of there. So, anyway... Um, there'll be more discussion of that in episodes to come, I'm sure, because we are uh, about to get into election season, so there'll be plenty to talk about on that front. Um, we've got a new Congress, and uh, the Democrats have officially taken over. Nancy Pelosi is officially Speaker again. She's made history, not only as being the first female Speaker of the House, but she got the, back, the job back again. So this is her second time around. I think only one or two other people have ever in the history of our country um, become speaker again for the second time. So um, it's going to be the Democrats are hell bent on investigating the Trump administration. And as they should, since Republicans have completely abdicated all of their oversight functions while while they were in power, which is partially why Democrats took the House back, you know, in the middle of the um, people in suburban America and middle of the road folks were sick and tired of it and said, no, we're going to throw you guys out. You're not holding this guy accountable, Trump. We want some new leadership. So let's see what the Democrats do with it. Um, but this episode is going to be good. I've got three awesome interviews. So first off, we're going to talk uh, about this R. Kelly controversy, which is going on the series, um, Surviving R. Kelly. Oh my God. You know, I've, um, I've been heavy on politics the last couple episodes, but I do like to talk pop culture. So this episode, we're going to have some pop culture and politics uh, all wrapped up in it. We're going to talk, um, I have um, Torre, veteran journalist in pop culture. He used to be on MTV. He was on BET. He was also prominently featured in this, this docuseries, uh, Surviving R. Kelly. 
and he's going to be on in a, in a little bit. And then um, my friend John Murray, who's also a pop culture expert, he's uh, been around for several years. He was on um, the radio, and he's on HLN and other cable news networks talking politics and culture. He's he's, um, he's a lot of fun, and he has some information that wasn't in the documentary. He has more insider information about what's been going on with R. Kelly and this sex cult that he's been running and his some of this just really disturbing details about things that he's been doing with uh, underage girls and how long this has been going on. So those are really good discussions, really good interviews. So stay tuned for that. They are coming up. And then after those interviews, I talked to Trump biographer Michael D'Antonio. He wrote the book um, uh, The Truth About Trump that came out in 2015. So he has spent some considerable time with Donald Trump and he has some interesting insight into Trump's psyche and some of the things that Trump told him during the election um, about why he was running and some of the tactics that he uses. It's uh, pretty interesting stuff. So that's a good conversation too, coming up with Michael D'Antonio. He's also a colleague of mine at CNN. So you see him on there talking oftentimes about Trump, especially when he's acting like a loon, which is most of the time. But um, Michael brings uh, some great perspective to that. So that's a little bit of a preview of this episode. And um, I started to talk a little bit about how we have a new Congress, which is true. There's some There was some controversy with some of the new freshman members. Um, one freshman member who said that we're going to impeach this motherfucker during a reception after her swearing in, Congressman uh, Talib from Michigan. And I was critical of her with that statement, making that statement, because I just felt it was completely inappropriate for a member of Congress to do. Whether you agree or not, uh, that's irrelevant. I think that you cannot criticize the lack of decorum criticize Trump and the, the, the debasing of the office of the presidency and applaud her for making comments like that in public. You're a member of Congress now. There's a certain, um, there's just certain things that you really shouldn't engage in or say out of respect for the institutions. I'm sorry, I don't want to give, I don't want Trump to set the standard. I caught a lot of shit on social media because I criticized her for this and Frankly, I'm unapologetic for it. I stand by what I said. You cannot criticize Donald Trump and how decency has been lowered because of Trump and the things that he says, because he's dead wrong for those things and we shouldn't be accepting of them. You can't criticize that and then turn around and applaud her just because and, and try to say, well, she was passionate about it and, well, I wouldn't have used those words. Well, okay. But there's other ways that you can express your passion without disrespecting the office of the presidency, especially when you are an elected member of Congress. Just do better. There's other ways. And her son was present too. I just, look, look, I'm a Jersey girl. I drop the F-bomb all the time. But I'm also not a member of Congress. One day I hope to be a member of Congress. Yes, I will run for office one day. I guarantee you I will not be calling anybody a motherfucker while I'm a member of Congress in public. So I'm just trying to, the principle is the same. So you don't get a pass just because the person, you might like that person, um, but they're doing something that you would criticize somebody else for. That's being a hypocrite. So I stand by my criticism of her. I just think that, you know, just don't, don't become what you despise. Bottom line. Um, 
Ocasio, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She's a big rock star on the Dem side. She's a big lefty democratic socialist. I don't agree with her political worldview at all. I have, I'm diametrically opposed to her policy prescriptions. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, that's a conversation for another day where I can get into why I disagree with democratic socialism, why it's been a failure everywhere it's been tried. Um, I don't want our country to turn into Venezuela. That's a prime example of what some of the principles behind her policies, that's what happens. So that's not an exaggeration. So, but, uh, you know, that's a different worldview. However, I don't um, diminish her accomplishment. Good for her. Youngest member of Congress, woman, congressman, uh, congresswoman ever elected. She took out a titan on the Democratic side and Joe Crowley. He was next in, next in line to be speaker. So she accomplished something pretty remarkable. But that also doesn't absolve her from criticism. And um, I don't think that Republicans, though, should be attacking her. There was a video that was released of her dancing around, recreating a, a scene from the 80s movie, The Breakfast Club, while she was in high school or college or something. And, and that was supposed to be some, like, look at her, like, what? what? It was ridiculous. So what? She was running around having fun in a video when she was a kid. Okay, I don't see it. That just made her more likable. She's got like 2 million Twitter followers. So more Twitter followers than Nancy Pelosi. She's a rock star on the left. On, on the left. All Republicans are doing by attacking her with stupid things like that is just raising her profile. So I don't think that's the tactic. Criticize her policies. Challenge her on the merits of her arguments. Don't go after her personally and stuff like that. You know, the NRA put out this awful video. These two men were just kind of talking about her like like she was a child. And I mean, look, I, I don't like that. That's that's not OK. That's not OK. It's very childish and, um, you know, borderline sexist. And I, I don't like that, even if I vehemently disagree with her worldview. Now, um, she did an interview on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper. Yes, he also does 60 Minutes, as well as being an anchor on CNN. And my buddy, I love Anderson. Did anybody watch Anderson and Andy on New Year's Eve? Oh my god, it's too much. Don and Brooke stole the show, though. But it was, I, I was out in Key West, and actually CNN had cameras down in Key West, but they were on Upper Duval Street, I was on Lower Duval Street, and at the Cuban bar I was at, they had it on, on television, so I saw a little bit of it, and then I saw clips, but it's, it was wild, it was a wild night. But anyway, um, and poor Anderson, he looked miserable out there in all that rain. Oh, God. It was 80 degrees in Key West, though. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, she did an interview with Anderson on CNN. I'm sorry, on 60 Minutes, where, you know, she was asked about some of the misstatements that she's made. You know, she's been factually inaccurate about some of the some of the statements she's made. And um, one of them, she got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post fact checkers. That's the most Pinocchios you can get. That means it's like a blatant falsehood. And so, so Anderson asked her, you know, how, how do you reconcile that, you know? And so she, her answer, I thought she flubbed it. She had some really good answers in, in, in other parts of the interview. But this one, I thought, I mean, you know, as far as presentation, like I said, I don't agree, but she answered them well. This one, she flubbed in my opinion because her rationale was no different than people who criticize, who, who support Donald Trump when he lies or makes things up or 
which is completely factually inaccurate. But they say, yeah, but he's well-intentioned. Well, who cares what he says or who cares if he makes that up, you know, as long as he gets the job done. No, the means do not justify the ends. Where do you draw the line with that? And that principle is no different applied to people who you agree with. So you might like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You might like her democratic socialist policies and, you know, okay. But she's got to be accurate. Facts still matter. Despite Donald Trump trying to destroy truth and facts and those principles, no, we still have to hold both sides accountable. So she said that, well, when she makes mistakes that she goes, oh, well, that was clumsy. And then she goes back and restates her point. But that that's not the same as Donald Trump demonizing immigrants. You know, she's the, the, the she's more her positions are more moral. So that is supposed to overshadow her being factually inaccurate. No, no, I think that's intellectually dishonest if you defend that. So she, if she simply would have come out and said, well, look, you know, I'm still learning. There's a little bit of a learning curve. If I make a mistake, I'm going to make sure that I go back and do my homework and make sure because facts matter and I need to be accurate in what I say. If she had said that, okay, fine. People are going to give you a pass. I mean, she was a bartender a year and a half ago and she's 29 years old, member of Congress. There's going to be a learning curve. And I think people will understand that. But you can't, don't make excuses because that's no different than the people who make excuses for Donald Trump. It's not, in my opinion. My friend Angela, Angela Rye and I had a little bit of a difference of opinion on this on CNN on Monday with Brooke Baldwin. The, the clip is out there. And, you know, and I said, listen, I said, you're a member of Congress now, honey. <laughs> you got to be accurate. If you want to be treated like a grown-up, you need to have grown up, be prepared with grown-up answers. Angela tried to come for me and say, why do you got to call her honey? But I was just being funny because, you know, come on, Angela. You can call people boo and bye Felicia and all that on there <laughs> trying to come for me. But it was friendly banter. It was all right. That's my girl. We may not agree on politics, but we're, we're, we're friends off air. It's all good. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye on uh, Miss, Miss Ocasio-Cortez. It's going to be interesting. Interesting to see how Nancy Pelosi deals with those insurgent members of the Democratic Party that are calling for you know, impeachment right away and all of these other things, 70% taxation on the rich. And Nancy Pelosi is going to have her hands full. And she's got one job, and that's to defeat Donald Trump in 2020 and try to keep that Democratic caucus together. It's going to be, it's going to be a wild ride. I just hope the Democrats don't overstep for their sake, for everybody's sake, because we're, we're, we're counting on you to bring some balance, please. But please, don't go too wacky to the left, please, on stuff. Because you're just going to go ahead and get Donald Trump reelected. Don't give him an excuse. Um, shutdown, still going on. We've got this uh, government, partial government shutdown. As I've mentioned, my husband is a uh, federal law enforcement officer under the Department of Homeland Security. And yes, he is working as an essential person without pay. Um, it's an impasse. Donald Trump is throwing a temper tantrum. He's being ridiculous. Democrats are trying to balance this. They won't budge on the money. He won't budge on the money. Um, but now we're starting to see more real-world effects of this shutdown, how it's affecting people. It's not fair that 800,000 federal workers are being held as pawns, held hostage. Their livelihoods are threatened. Their mortgages, their student loans, their car payments. People you know, are going to get to the point where they have to choose between 
putting gas in their car to go to work or feeding their families. Like this is bullshit and it and it's all unnecessary because Donald Trump is looking at this as a political win in his mind so that he can he can, you know, keep his base riled up and support him and say, Oh see, I took it to the st- the establishment and I for border security, we want that border wall, the stupid freaking wall. You know, this is one of the biggest con jobs ever, besides Trump getting elected. But this whole idea that there's some national emergency, Donald Trump wants to use powers to declare, his presidential powers to declare a national emergency, to use Department of Defense funds to start building a frickin' wall. Let me say a couple things about that. Number one, there is no national emergency. This is not warranted. Nobody's invading us. It's not like an army invading us on their southern border that we need to build a barrier right now. Are there problems on the southern border? Yes. Are there gaps in areas along the southern border with Mexico that we need to have some type of physical barrier that's not there now? Yes. But this is not a national emergency. We have 18,000 plus border patrol agents. We could use more. We could, there are things we could do to improve it, but it's a, it's a multifaceted effort. It's not just a physical wall. Okay. Like some medieval thing. And it's not even going to be a wall. Most of the time, it's a bollard wall. I talked about this in my last podcast with, you know, the slats and where they can see through. The Border Patrol doesn't fucking want a concrete wall because they can't see what's going on on the other side. So Donald Trump was just bullshitting people to get them, because it was a simplistic concept, to say they were going to build a wall, a big, beautiful concrete wall. No, no. And by the way, it came out that his advisors devised the whole thing about the wall because he's a builder during the campaign so he could remember to mention immigration during his stream of consciousness rallies that he would have. That's how that whole thing with the wall started. Yeah, so he could remember and they could, he could associate the building of the wall with him being the branding of being a builder and that's how that whole thing started, so... So everybody, you know, this is ridiculous. And the other thing about it is, you know, a, a national emergency is like 9-11, okay? That's a freaking national emergency. A major Cat 5 hurricane barreling down on like, you know, a, a large portion of the country. That's a national emergency. Building a wall is not, building a, a, a barrier or pr- providing more funds for border, border stuff, that's not a, a national freaking emergency. And... Trump has already said that he was willing to keep the government shut down for months or years to get the funding. Well, how do you reconcile that? If you're willing to wait months or years to get the funding, then how the fuck is it a national emergency now? It, it, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical because it's not. It's a, it's a political tool. So, and the other thing is, you can't build this overnight. You're not going to just be, you have to go through environmental impact statements. They have to do, they have to put out a bid to, to um, get a contractor. Now, not if you force the military, take military funds to do it. And I guess the Army Corps of Engineers would do it. But that's crazy. That's circumventing Congress. That's what Republicans criticized Barack Obama for doing when it came to immigration. Now, all of a sudden, it's okay? No. So, I don't know how this ends But all I know is that we need to keep focusing on the impact that this shutdown has on real Americans. Donald Trump had the audacity to say that he can relate to people who are not getting paid and being forced to work and can't pay their bills. No, I don't think so, buddy. Maybe you can relate to 
screwing workers over and not paying your bills, declaring bankruptcy, and then screwing over small business owners. Some lost everything because you didn't pay them for the contract work they did, like in Atlantic City. Maybe he can relate to that part. But he's been a spoiled rich kid his entire life. He's no, he can, no, he can't relate. Ridiculous. Okay, well, um, speaking of the border wall and, you know, he claims that there's drugs and terrorists coming through and all this. Well, there is a new series coming up and it's a very interesting one. So you've probably heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me right. Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. This Wednesday at 10, 9 central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself weighing over his head, and the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. So get hooked on Pure. Series premiere Wednesday at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV, channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. That's pure on WGN America. Okay. <clears throat> so I've talked a little bit about the politics, and we're going to talk with Michael D'Antonio later um, in the podcast about Trump and just the way he's, his approach to shutdown. But something else um, that happened after I came back from vacation um, was this Lifetime series called Surviving R. Kelly. Now, um, I was a huge R. Kelly fan in the 90s. Many of us were. R. Kelly is a genius, musical genius, genius writer, producer. Um, you know, I mean, I Believe I Can Fly, You Are Not Alone, and multiple other songs. Uh, he's not only he crossed over from not just R&B, but to pop music, too. He's worked with every major artist. I mean, R. Kelly is a legend. R. Kelly is also a sick, deranged child sexual predator. And that's been known for a very long time, not only in the music industry, but elsewhere. He has been allowed to get away with this treatment of young black girls for decades. And this documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, it's a six-part series on Lifetime, debuted last week, is, it's hard to put into words. It was tough to watch. And, um, but informative. And it makes you wonder how this bastard is still walking the streets free. Um, I encourage people to watch the documentary. And, um, if you haven't, or, you know, if you don't have the time, just look at the clips, but pay attention to what's going on. He should not, he should be under the jail. I don't know what legal action can be taken now, but he infamously was on trial for a uh, 
sex tape that he made with a 14-year-old girl where he urinated on her during sex acts. And some people may remember this. I remember when this happened. Uh, this was in 2000. I think the tape happened sometime between 99 and 2000, but he didn't get arrested for it until 2002. And it took six years for him to finally go to trial. And in between that time, he was still putting out bangers. Major hits. Major hit, one after the other. Trying to basically, I guess, mask him from the scrutiny of what he was doing. You know, when you have money and power and influence, you can get away with a lot. And the Me Too movement has exposed that. And I think the Me Too movement is also what inspired the, the, the documentarians who did this. Uh, Dream Hampton, who was the woman behind this documentary series, it really probably gave them an open door to expose what the hell has been going on here. And it's, uh, I felt that it was important to have this conversation. And I'm, I'm really happy to um, be able to have two people who are really involved in the, in the industry, who are knowledgeable about the situation, uh, to talk about it. And first up, I'm going to talk to Torre. Um, some of you may remember him from MTV, from BET. He also was on MSNBC on, on a show called The Cycle. He's the author of several books, including, uh, I think his last book was on Prince. And uh, Torre is, uh, is someone who had been following this issue, covering it from even back when, when R. Kelly first married Aaliyah, when she was 15. That was in the 90s. That was the first big controversy. So uh, I want to welcome Torre to Honestly Speaking with Tara to talk to me a little bit about um, R. Kelly, surviving R. Kelly, and uh, his perspective. So I'm so pleased to have Torre on Honestly Speaking for the first episode back in the new year to talk about something that everyone is talking about, which is the Lifetime series Surviving R. Kelly. Torre, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Um, welcome. Yeah, thank you. So you were prominently featured throughout this documentary, and for those who haven't seen it or haven't heard about it, it is about R. Kelly, um, one of the biggest R&B artists uh, of our generation, and the 20-year controversy over his seemingly um, penchant for young girls. And this documentary exposes this, um, and, and features a lot of his uh, survivors, as people are calling them. And you, Torre, as a writer, journalist, cultural uh, expert, are prominently featured. How did you come about getting involved with this project? Um, well, I mean, one thing I think, I mean, you know, you and I are not in a court of law. I think it's a little precious at this point to, to talk about it in sort of alleged terms. Right. And seemingly, it'll be, there's, so much evidence and so many people uh, pointing very credible fingers and telling very credible stories um, and video evidence that we've seen. I mean, I, I've lived this story through multiple eras of my journalism career. I mean, I was working at MTV News when he was married to Aaliyah and we were all like, isn't she too young to be right. married to him? Right. Like, just everybody in the office. And my boss told me, call the Cook County clerk's office and get a copy of the marriage certificate and let's see what it says. 
And I did. And they said it to me. Um, and it said she was 18 and we knew she was not. And um, we were we were the first to start pushing that story. And then a few years later, and I wasn't even on air at that time. And a few years later, I was on air at DET about a decade later. And uh, I was the one to interview him after he came off of the trial. But this had been after living through the trial, which, you know, we assumed that he was... I think a lot of people assumed he was going to go down, even though it took forever to get him on the trial right. for it a was, long time. It, it was like, like six years, right? He was arrested yeah. in 2002, and then the trial didn't actually happen until six years later. So a lot happened in between that time. Yeah, and it was just constant delays and holdups, and it was just like, oh, this is just never going to come to the fore. And um, sitting and talking with him was pretty epic. Um, I remember try, trying to trying to get him to talk about the situation and I had been asking him do you like underage girls yes and I remember that saying, interview by the way and and that since this docu, docu-series came back that interview has been shown prominently and a lot of people have gone right. back and watched it because the reaction now um and well, seeing him is is pretty shocking what year was that that you did that interview I believe it was oh six okay oh six it was shortly after he got off of uh uh trial for for child pornography like a that month been or 08. something after the was that was it, i don't think it was 08 i don't think i was there in 08 well it doesn't matter it was um, <laughs> we, we can go back and google it but whatever it was, it was yeah, whatever know, it whatever, was it was still pretty pretty shocking to I mean, see his reaction know, i mean well you can't well for one thing you can't go back and watch the whole thing because BEC has shelved it so everybody has this moment right i'm asking the core question which we can see and repeat and has gone hyper viral over many years. But the whole of the interview, you cannot see because BET is blocking us from seeing why they are standing behind him on this. I have no idea. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. But I mean, so I asked him, do you like underage girls? And he kept trying to locate that around 13. Do I like 13 year old girls? No, that's disgusting. (sighs) So I'm like, you are, you are, you are, you are negotiating the actual point out of the conversation was right. responding to me saying underage at 13, right? So in the last, in the time you see, I said, do you like teenage girls? So he wouldn't be able to just a 13. Now that's gross. So then he was really stuck and he's kind of like, uh, you know, and like mm-hmm. you kind of see like his, but his body his his body was really saying yes even though his mouth was trying to say no, but it took him a while to get around to actually saying no. Wasn't that actually a a lyric? My mind's telling me no, but your body's telling me yes? My body. (laughs) 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 But I mean, like, yeah, it's a softball question. Yeah. you like teenage girls? Right. 27. Actually, at that point, he was not 20. He was in his mid to late 30s, right? It's a super easy question, but he couldn't just say no. Um, well, also at that same time, and this is this comes out in the in the the documentary. While he was on trial, he was well into his thirties. He was still eyeing young girls, and there's another young lady who was 14 years old who claims that she he started talking to her, and she ended up in his sex cult uh, eventually. While I he mean, was on trial, I, I mean, this is it's mind boggling to me that he was able to get away with this for so long. It is, Why do it you is think? Well, it is mind-boggling. I mean, you know, part of it is, I think, just humanity's 
and societies, or at least American societies, attraction to fame. Um, you know, when you have that sort of fame, uh, people are going to be attracted to you just for that. At first, the first few years, it just seemed to to play into being the bad boy of R&B and a sort of bad boy in general. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, I mean, I know with Aaliyah, we thought, oh, maybe it was just true love and now we'll move on. Right. And then as he got older and his girlfriend did not, it was like, <laughs> oh, that's who he is. Um, I mean, I think in, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I think that in previous decades, there was more, uh, acceptance of this sort of behavior by rock stars mm-hmm. and I use it Mark Kelly moves R&B um, and I think you know the recent era has become much more serious about taking crimes against girls uh, more seriously uh, well sure we live in the era of me too now I mean yeah. look at the titans that, that that's taken down you know, and I, and I mean, I, we've pushed. I mean, this this conversation about R. Kelly has been pushed for a while. Sure, and I remember. A lot of incre- there's a lot of incredible stuff in this documentary, but for a lot of us who've been paying attention to this for a while, the broad strokes we all knew, everybody do. Mm-hmm. You know, this is. Um, but the, the 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 climate has changed. But you know, also Tara, I do think that there is a strain in some black people where if white people accuse him they you of something especially a black man that some people and quite often black women will will rise to his defense just on the level of so many black men are having blah 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 done to them and they'll leap up to defend him even if he's guilty even if he's guilty of hurting black women and i think you see in this situation an abandonment of some black women by some black women in order to protect a black man. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is one of the fascinating, I think, um, sociological aspects of this. There are many facets to this entire story about why certain things happen, who allowed it, how come, why society accepts it, how these women end up there. But the idea that there were, all of these women, black women in particular, that were rallying behind R. Kelly and defending him during the trial, despite the overwhelming evidence, was something that my husband and I were actually talking about. Like, what? what is that? Like, what? And I think you hit the nail on the head, that there is a certain idea of protecting your own if who is traditionally considered the oppressor is the one mm-hmm. they perceive being the oppressor. Regardless of whether they're guilty or not, we're going to rally around our own. And I, and he, my husband calls it the Marion Barry syndrome um, mm-hmm. because he, he went mm-hmm. to high school in D.C. My husband's actually from Brooklyn, by the way. He's originally in Brooklyn, because I know you're a Brooklynite. Um, mm-hmm. But he ended up in um, high school in D.C. And so he was around you know, at the Marion Barry summer jobs and things like that, and he saw that phenomenon. Didn't matter that he got caught smoking crack on tape with you know, a woman that wasn't his wife. I mean, um, but I people remember. Still, it's the same. It's a similar concept, but he was, he was for us. I remember people... I remember tweets after <clears throat> Chris Brown beat up Rihanna and mm. black girls yeah. saying he could beat me up. Yes, another example. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'm not by no means am I saying all black women or all black people have this response, but I think some of us 
are having this response in these situations of the, if the man is accusing or just even whoever, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, um, you know, just to protect the black man becomes paramount over everything else. Right. I, I think that's a broader discussion that needs to be had. Um, yeah. And there needs to be some self-reflection within the community about how, what is, what is the red line? Because what happened, I think R. Kelly is shining a a light on something that is very ugly and something that should not be tolerated moving forward in this day and age. I, I just, um, I, I'm glad to have that conversation. It's a tough one, but one but I that mean, needs I, to you be know, I don't even want to, I don't even want to stop. I, I don't want to land too hard on blaming the, you know, the young black women and the grown black women and the black men who, who want to stand beside him, even at this point, um, because part of what they're doing is based on some good intentions and some misguided notions. Um, but really, the corporations that yes. continue to be in business with him that right. are not uh, that are not questioning and challenging and rejecting, why is RCA Records still in business with him? Why... Are the streamers still playing him? Why is the concert promotion uh, operation still booking him? You know, Live Nation, these sort of folks. What you know? And at this, you know, it's not as if he's still dropping hot albums, so he's generating tons of money. So you know, we're really looking the other way because we don't want to screw up the the golden goose, which is what they did uh, before, right? Right. That's no longer the case. He's a right. legacy act. So there's, I mean, like it it wouldn't take that much courage because there's not that much money coming in to the R. Kelly business. When you were when you when you were covering this before contemporaneously, um, is it true that when the record labels and and sponsors were confronted with this, that they basically said, "Well, how much money is he generating for us?" Versus, "Well, he's credibly accused of like statutorily raping young girls on tape." Was there actually that discussion? Do you know that for a fact? Um, I I mean, I cannot say to you X executive had a conversation with Y A&R and that was transmitted to me. Right. I know this is how those discussions go. Sure. I'm not sure if there was a serious discussion, though, about should we dump him? I think this is very recent mm-hmm. in terms of our history and where we are as a nation that we would do something like say, you know, maybe we should dump him. And this is new. This did not happen. This didn't ha- even, I mean, like history will look back on it. Like they just totally changed in like a year. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, what, what stood out to you the most as you you know, we're recounting what you remember and, and things that from, from that time period and just looking at all this as you were doing the documentary, but what, what was, what stood out to you the most? And was there anything that you learned during or even watching it that you didn't even know that you were like, holy shit, that, well, there's that different happened? Things that I, yeah, well, there's different, I mean, I, there's certainly things I've learned. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't try to follow it blow by blow. I mean, you know, I remember, R. Kelly saying to me, I have 19 year old friends. Mm. And just the way that he said that was clear that he was not talking about 
friends, right? I right. Mean, like, friends in the biblical sense. <laughs> yeah, he and I are about the same age. And, you know, when I was in my late 30s, it's very hard to talk to 18 and 19-year-olds outside of an academic or a family context. Like, just a social context. Right. You know, like, family and academic give you, here's the clear purpose for these conversations, and we can go. Uh, so social, we're just meeting is like, how do I, like, what are we supposed to talk about right. for more than four minutes? Like, what do I talk to a 19 year old about for more than, you know, like, what other is, than what maybe you helping you, like helping you with the new what? iPhone? Like, what are we talking yeah, about? What do you, yeah. What do you watch? Can you download this app for me? And then after that, like, what are we talking about? <laughs> like, and, and I remember feeling like, number one, what the hell are you talking about with them to have an ongoing relationship with them? But then also you're ma- you're married, and you're basically bragging that you have a 19 year old girlfriend, and where's his wife and all that? And to hear his wife in this talk about being locked away and being controlled and being moved around against her will, and just being this pawn, um, that was really really hard to hear and really shocking to me. Did you, was it shocking because of how ruthless it was or was it shocking because you didn't believe that she was completely clueless of, about everything that was going on? Did you think that she, did you, did she come across credible no, to you? I don't think she knew. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't uh, me think too. I, don't I, I agree. Yeah I, I, yeah. I couldn't really see any reason why she would know and look the other way. Right. Um, and yeah, and she makes a good point about he was good at keeping it separate and behaving differently because uh, this is how you do that. You know, this is how you do that sort of a thing. You know what I mean? If, if she had known, if he'd been rude to her or whatever, then that would have been a problem. And she made that point. Um, she said, I wish I would have known if I would have known this. I, it would have saved me a lot of heartache and, and pain. Um, I wish I would have known. She also said something else that I, I found very poignant because in the series, it talks a little bit about his childhood where um, there's some allegation that he was uh, sexually abused, him and his younger brother. Um, Twice, we, right? Yeah, yeah, which I didn't know. That was something I hadn't heard before, which would explain a lot of why, you know, he, he was a, a sexual deviant, but we don't have to get into We can have psychologists talk about that. But she said that he wants to be perceived as the ultimate alpha male when he was actually the runt of the litter and that that's what drove him in everything that he did. And I I found that to be very interesting. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting notion. Maybe she's right. I mean, you know, I think we should all, uh, you know, be very careful about psychologically or psychiatrically judging people who, we've never even met. Right? I mean, right? Huh? No, ab- absolutely. I, but at the same right, time, I mean, there's like, certain things I that mean, just basic Powell things. We talk about that in terms of like the Goldwater, was it the Goldwater? Yes. Principle, right? right. You're not supposed to be, you know, and some people did that with Trump. I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it appears to be true, or at least from his telling that he was abused multiple times the child right that is tragic i'm so sorry that happened um does it does it potentially explain perhaps does it excuse of course not right absolutely not of course of course 
uh, I think it was also pretty fascinating what a master manipulator he was um, and how he was able to just control these women in, in like a sex cult. It, it, it felt very Rick James, you know, I was like, mm. what, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and for it to go, for it to be ongoing for all of these years and, and, and even just at the time, like when everyone shrugged off the Aaliyah thing, and I'm guilty of that too, you know, I mean, R. Kelly's yeah. music was the soundtrack of my, you know, my 20s and college. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I, the I Believe I Can Fly song is one of the most iconic pop songs, ballads ever made. Sure. Um, yeah. And I and, and I do think that that side of him and the fact that he was able to produce music like that shielded him somewhat from culpability even though people so many people knew what was going on that they just that gave them cover to say no that guy couldn't possibly be this this evil you know predator on girls like do you think that 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 there was something to do with that even with that song i mean perhaps you know perhaps i mean you know, it's 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 too easy to be like, oh, I'm going to separate the art from the artist, mm-hmm. and it's two different conversations, and and that's just totally absolving the artist and allowing them to do and be whoever they want. And I can't listen to R. Kelly without thinking about these things. I can't listen to Woody Allen or watch mm-hmm. Woody Allen. I can't watch the Cosby Show without thinking. I mean. I can't even listen to Kanye without thinking about his MAGA craziness. Right. And that's not like against the law or anything, you know. Um, uh, so the things that artists do out off stage can have a distracting impact on the audience, if, you know, if not disgusting them and even want to vomit and run from their show. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's silly to think that you have to divorce those things. Um, or that you can truly divorce those things. Um, you know, that said, <clears throat> you know, music in particular, Roxanne Gay talks about this in Bad Feminist, that music in particular gets at you on a uh, sort of post-lingual subconscious level, right? Like you don't dance to a rhythm because it makes sense to you on subconscious or intellectual way, it mm. gets deeper in, right? You start dancing yeah. before you even realize you're dancing. Like you pull your hand away from the stove before you realize <laughs> it's hot. Right. You know, like right. the beat just starts going, you just start getting into it. And he is one of these, you know, once in a century music makers who made lots and lots of songs that we could not uh, get away from that became more than just pop songs, but iconic, not just, I believe I can fly step in the name of love and others that became, I mean, Nelson George talks about this in the documentary that became part of our weddings, our reunions, our family picnics. So it was more than just an artist who we liked, but it was somebody who grandma and the kids could all, jam two together and becomes wrapped up in our memories of these of these epic events you know of how we went to you know mom's 90th birthday party and we all did the line dance right the name of love it was so great and like you know they released the doves with i believe i can fly it was so great 
And then to be like, he's actually a monster, you guys. Like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. I get that contradiction. Um, I think that contradiction is hard for a lot of people to reconcile. And if, if um, you know, you put your head in the sand, you just you don't want to know about the other side. We just want to know. We just want to remember mm-hmm. the step in the name of love guy, not the, you know, um, the P tape guy. You know, and I mean, just, be <laughs> let's be honest I here. Saw the, I saw the P tape and it even still it took me a long, long time to not continue to to stop loving uh, the the ignition remix right it was just like that beat in particular just destroyed me and that would be the one kryptonite that I'm like I can't front on that record <laughs> I still like that record even yeah. though I don't like this guy renounced uh, you remind me of my Jeep and yeah. a couple of other things that I like but that one I couldn't shake for a long long time I mean and you know so I was guilty of it too that 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 particular rhythm would come on it would rock i couldn't not bump to it even as i'm saying god this guy's a freaking asshole Mm -hmm. oh my god i can't Mm -hmm. no i get it my husband and i were in miami beach uh during our new year's vacation and we were sitting along ocean drive and the dj was playing you know 90s hip-hop and r&b and a couple Mm -hmm. r kelly songs were thrown in there some of the remixes and we were just both like oh my god you know like Damn, he was so talented. What a genius. But this guy's a predator sicko, man. Like I'm like, I mean, oh. You know, it's, it's, it's complicated because, it you know, we can't, you, you can't tell the story of 90s R&B without mentioning R. Kelly, yeah. you know. And, like, I'm dealing with it, similar to the thing right now, right? I'm working on Rakim's memoir, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have to finish it in the next couple of days, so it's very top of brain. And... You know, we're going through some of the creators of hip hop, and I'm like, I don't want to even mention Africa Bambata right <sighs> now after what we know about him, right? Right, and I kind of like find a way around not mentioning him, but it's a clear hole when Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash are mentioned. You know, real hip hop fans will be like, Well, where's Bam? Yeah, yeah. how do you not and, mention and, it? And then here, Russell is part of this, Russell Simmons is part of the story. Mm-hmm. And I can't not mention Russell. That would be too much. Just, just he's too wrapped up in Rakim's story to just not mention him. Yep. Um, but I'm like, how can I minimize him? Because I don't want to talk about him. I don't want to mention. So it just, it just, it's just, it, it all becomes very messy. Very messy. Well, um, I'm, I'm know, knowing now also that you're trying to finish a book. You've been very gracious with your time. Um, my, my last question to you though is. Is R. Kelly's time finally up, though? Do you think this finally does him in? I don't know. 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 I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You know, we've had big, we've had big reports on him before. Not this big. Not getting this much attention. And yet, Tar, you see, you know, the day after the first episodes ran, uh, Big, huge numbers for R. Kelly at Spotify. I know. I know. So people watched Awful. or heard about this special. and I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, here's a six-hour special on how beef is killing you. And it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's 
poison that's contaminated if don't eat the beef. And then people run out. I'm really hungry for a steak, honey. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, I mean, not even like we, we, we left it alone for a few months and then we meandered back to R. Kelly, the old habits. But like right. the next day, like we're going to show, we'll show you, we're going to bump R. Kelly all day long. Yeah. I I, it's, no, it's, I, you know, I don't know. I'm I don't waiting. Know. I mean, is the other side paying attention? It's kind of like it is kind of like what we talk about in politics. The other side is not paying attention. Right. So all the negative and truthful things we say about Trump, the other side is not listening because they're not paying attention. So they continue to love it. So we're like, when will they pay attention? Well, they didn't hear you. Mm-hmm. They didn't hear you say truthfully, this, 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 this happened, and this did not. Well, so I don't know. I don't know. It's don't fr- know. it's frustrating. And and the sad commentary about all of this is that we neither one of us can say definitively like this is it. I think that speaks volumes about right. where we are as a society. And not only with R. Kelly, Donald Trump, you know, people who um where the everything the it's so obvious what's happening in front of you, but they for whatever reason, um don't want to accept the truth. They don't want to accept what's in front of them because they don't want to pass judgment or he does something for them. Um, I just think it's very selfish sometimes where we as a society are unwilling to stand up for what's right because, you know, it forces you to have to maybe self-reflect. I don't know. But, well, <sighs> Torre, thank you for your time. Uh, best of luck on the on the book. Um, thank you. This will be, what, book number six for you, correct? You've already written yeah. five others. So, yeah. yeah. So I hope um, folks will go and check out your other books. And I look forward to this one. Rakim was an icon. And as someone that's from Jersey and loves old school hip hop, I appreciate lyrics and lyricists. Yeah. Rakim was one yeah. of the one of the best of the best and always will be. So fascinating. Oh, yeah. You have to come back and talk to me when the book comes out. I will. Sounds good. Torre, thank you thank so you. much. Okay. Obviously, this conversation around the Surviving R. Kelly documentary has a lot of people buzzing, especially in the black community, especially in the pop culture entertainment space. And we I just finished talking to Torre, who was in the documentary, but I also wanted to have my friend John Murray on to talk about it because he is a pop culture expert as well. And he has... Um, information and perspective that I think is fresh and interesting and that people would like to hear. So John, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. So glad you could do it for me today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, my friend. So you, uh, although you were not in the documentary, but you have been all over uh, cable news and on social media talking about this surviving R. Kelly and um, giving your perspective and some insider information about people you know that uh, were involved and what's going on. So uh, talk to me a little bit. A, what was your reaction when you watched the docuseries? And B, uh, what are you now hearing? What, 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 are the, what are the streets talking about? Well, you know, having like aggressively discussed R. Kelly's um, behavior and the things going on, uh, in his house with the, uh, you know, it's been framed as the sex cult. Um, and just talking about some of his shenanigans and his un- unethical behavior on cable news over the last year, um, you know, and having uh, several friends who 
um, may or may not continue to be employed by him, uh, giving me insight and perspective and analysis of things that have been happening in the house and on the road and things of that nature. Um, I thought I knew a lot. And I have to say, with knowing as much as I did, um, you know, maybe 75% of the documentary I was very familiar with. But there were still revelations and information and details that even still shook me to my core. And, uh, the, and I'm not one a person that's easily moved, you know, easily moved by emotion or moved to emotion. And, you know, it takes a lot to get me to cry. But uh, episodes five and six literally wiped me out. Like, I, thank God I was watching on DVR because I literally had to pause and take a minute and really process the things that I was seeing. I mean, that mother working to rescue her oh my daughter. Goodness, yeah. I, it was powerful television. And then, I mean, these are things that we hear of happening in third world countries. These are things that we hear happening and, uh, and, and with, you know, folks running underground sex trafficking operations. But we were watching something on television that literally was happening uh, around one of the greatest R&B singers of our time. And so in plain the, the sight. dichotomy of that. In, in plain, plain sight. sight. Right. That in was the, the name. middle of Beverly Hills. Yeah, that yeah. was the name of one of the episodes, I think, right? In, in plain sight. Yes. Because it was so like, and, and people have known about this for decades like this isn't new information about what a disgusting predator r kelly is i think what's new was the sex cult part of it maybe for some people and maybe what was new for for younger folks like the millennials who didn't necessarily grow up listening to him the way like like those of us who are over 40 did but there's still r kelly is still one i mean he's a legendary r&b artist um who's written some of the greatest contemporary pop songs out there and for all of this to be going on and so many people to know and then to still see this happening in 2018 i i I couldn't believe it and you know what my husband he has two daughters okay from a previous marriage and they are 14 and 10 my husband would not watch this with me he told me he said i can't watch this he said, because I tell you right now, if that those were my daughters, R. Kelly would not be on this earth. He said, you just give me the summary. And he would go in his office and he, because I watched it, um, we came back from vacation and I watched it on demand. And he would come out every like 20 minutes or so and watch like two minutes and say, okay, so what happened? He could not watch it as a father with daughters. Wow. And it's funny, I, I, so I had brunch with a group of my friends yesterday and I actually challenged one of my friends who is a father and has a daughter, um, I told him, I said, you have to watch this. Because there are a lot of assumptions that people make going into this uh, documentary. Oh, these parents are just turning their kids over to this man because they want fame. Well, there may have been one or two instances where parents had a lack in judgment and they decided to allow this man to supervise their child's aspirations towards superstardom. But that wasn't the case with the majority of these women. Right. And so we have a lot of preconceived notions and assumptions about how these girls got into place. You know, there was a daytime talk show host who I had to call months ago because she was pushing the narrative. Well, I, you know, as a recording artist, 
I have seen groupies and I know how people show up and they're willing to do anything. And when I began to tell her some of the things that was currently happening in the house, she was reduced to tears on the phone. It was like, mm-hmm. I can't believe I took the posture that I took. And, and here's, here's but, the but, challenge. But here's the all. thing, though, John. She wasn't by herself. There were a lot of people that took that posture because there is that um, part of the culture of the uh, surrounding music and celebrities. You do have a groupie culture. I've seen it. I have friends in the industry. Same thing with sports. You do have that groupie culture. But this was very different. And I think that that those preconceived notions is partially what enabled him to get away with this for so long and to continue to. But we'll talk about where we think it's going to go after this documentary in a little bit. But go ahead. Make your point. Listen, yeah, I want to tell you, you know, you mentioned something earlier, and I really began to process this yesterday. Um, the, the, yes, we've known for a long time that um, R. Kelly had an appetite for underage women. We knew the story with Aaliyah and the marriage. We saw the sex tape with the underage girl. Um, but I think what made people at some point, at least some people, I will say, begin to move on because, you know, I have a long memory, you know, and I know we live in a society that when people don't remember what happens from day to day and you tell people a story, you don't remember that such and such <laughs> happened. Oh yeah. Right. I forgot that it happened. But I remember even before being in the industry, I remember uh, watching the news and reading magazines where people were having R Kelly CD burning events and people were getting um, those um, uh, construction trucks and driving back and forth over miles and pounds of his CDs as a way of protesting when he was going through his actual case. And yes, there were groups of black women that would be outside of the courthouse still cheering him on, but society, mainstream society had decided he was not a good person and they would no longer support him. Um, what R. Kelly did, and they detailed this very well in the yes, documentary, was they did. he re-engaged with the black church. Yep. He started running around with people like Kirk Franklin and, 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 and so the faith community kind of almost revalidated him. Um, and then all of a sudden he put out a hit record. And so because he was acquitted in the case, he got off. Uh, people were like, well, if the criminal justice system isn't holding him accountable. Who am I to judge? Right. And then he came out with that song Ignition. And at some point, because you already respected the genius of his music, because his craft resonated with people so much they were willing to move on the same way the criminal justice system moved on and i think that's how he got to this point now that's, a, that's a really criminal, that's a really good point and that was made in the documentary the day that he was arrested so for people who didn't see the documentary i suggest you watch it um it is tough to watch but um, you should watch it. You don't want to put your head in the sand about things like this because it brings up a lot of interesting societal questions too about the way we view young black girls and women, the way we treat celebrity. Um, a lot of those also bigger conversations I think are sparked by this documentary. But they say when he was arrested in 2002 for the child pornography, which was basically the P-tape, um, he went when he posted bail, he went straight to a church event with children. Straight to a church. And I Absolutely. was like, and, and, and when I heard that, I said, see now. And then the other day, I think it was yesterday, somebody posted a video. It was an older video by some pastor, some white evangelical pastor praying over R. Kelly. And I think it wasn't recent. It was back in the day because he still had braids. <laughs> so he looked young, but they were praying over him. 
praying against the evil forces trying to take this man of God down. I was sick to my stomach watching that video because I'm like, shame on them. But that speaks to your point about how he was very smart and strategic and how he constantly ingratiated himself to certain groups to, that would help kind of whitewash what he was doing and rotten people could look past it. And, you know, even with his music, Step in the Name of Love, these are songs that are, Absolutely. you know, family reunion happy songs, people. wedding songs. Yeah, happy people, wedding songs, all Sarah, these kinds of things. It's telling- oh created one of my favorite gospel albums of all time. What year was that? You Saved Me. What year it was, was really I don't even remember the year, but it was released in tandem. It was a double CD. It was his gospel album and his Steppers album. So it had Step in the Name of Love, Happy People, and all of that on one disc. And he had a gospel album on the other disc. And that gospel album is so good. And, you right know? So in it's, the, it's, and meanwhile, he's got women you know, chained up in a, in a house and they can't, you know, in a sex cult and he's still messing around sexually, you know, raping Absolutely. young girls. I mean, it's crazy. And so, you know, I've made it the parallel with R. Kelly, with O.J. Simpson, who was someone who did an, an egregious act and was able to escape justice the first time. And so because of that, he felt as though he became invincible and his actions ultimately led to him finally being incarcerated. After R. Kelly got off on the child pornography case, after the things that he was doing um, prior to what he's doing now, uh, you know, he was able to escape justice. He got worse. And so the things that he and so people are saying, well, why is everybody outraged now? What's up with this, you know, revisiting of the outrage Well, the things that he's doing now are 10 times worse than he was uh, facing a case for before? You know, like these women are being tortured and beaten and held in a house, there's Stockholm Syndrome. And so people are like, well, I mean, now they, you know, I know they may have been barely legal, but they can just leave if they want to. Well, there are aspects of of why a lot of those women choose to stay in that house that they didn't delve into in the documentary. Yeah, I was was thinking that. I'm like, they did have psychologists and clinical psychologists um, talking throughout, which were 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 very good. good. Yes, and it was great to hear from professionals because a lot of average folks are looking at this and asking those exact questions, like, why the hell didn't they just leave? And so there were certain, they were explaining the mental health issue behind that. But um, if you have some information a little bit more about that, things that they didn't touch on the documentary, please talk about that because yes. it, it, well, go ahead. P- part of the reason that people uh, don't want to leave the house is R. Kelly likes to videotape everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started from the time that he was a child. R. Kelly has uh, talked about in the past how, you know, when he was younger, he walked into a room and saw two uh, adults having a sexual act and they handed him a video recorder and began to have him record that moment. That kind of set, this whole thing in place where he likes to record all sex acts. So some of these scenarios and things that have happened in the house, R. Kelly has forced these girls to do this stuff on camera. And beyond sexual situations, there have just been some unspeakable things that some of these girls have had to do on camera. And a lot of that has been used as uh, a tool to keep them in the house. If you leave the house, I will release this information or this video publicly. And as we saw from one of the siblings of one of the young ladies in the house, yes, you know, she was physically roughed up by people in his team. And threatened. And, so, and threatened. 
So if they did that to her sister. Imagine what those how those girls fear escaping. How they the things that they feel that would happen to them and their family if they try to escape. So they are so emotionally tortured, tormented, and scared that even if the front door was left wide open, most of them would not walk out of it because they are fearful, not just for their life and their safety and their reputation, but they've also, in some instances, fallen in love with the man who held them captive. Right, which we've seen in other cases. I mean, same thing with Manson and and other cult-like figures where this has happened. Uh, Do you think, though, that... Even with all of it, well, I, well, we were talking before, and um, I was going to bring up to you the fact that there now seems to be a bunch of celebrities who are coming out publicly, um, being a part of this hashtag Mute R. Kelly effort uh, to try to get radio stations and streaming services and concert venues and his radio uh, and his um, uh, record label RCA to drop him and basically uh, ban him and shun him that more celebrities now are starting to come out after this documentary. But Jada Pinkett, um, she put out a video on Instagram the other day where she said, y'all help me out. How is it that this man's streaming uh, songs have gone up that this, that he's his Spotify and everything else that this is gone up despite what we have heard and what we saw and the overwhelming evidence about what he has done to all these women, how is it that people are still buying his music and streaming it? Well, well, you know, and, and the only number that we do have an indication of an increase is the streaming, which means that, you know, not necessarily buying that. And as, as we've learned with artists like Pharrell, artists are making like half a penny on a hundred dollars for a stream. You're not really seeing any money in the streaming realm. Oh, okay. But this That's is good. What I didn't I, know that. What I, this is what I believe. Now, if they said and all of a sudden he was getting record breaking downloads, that would be people spending actual money. And that's a different scenario. Okay. But this is what I believe to be happening, Tara. You're watching this documentary and they're explain, explaining the origins of some of these songs, things right. that were happening in his life or things that he was doing to people while some of this music was being created. And I think what people is, are doing as they're going back and revisiting the music, because now they want to listen to some of these songs with a different ear, through a different lens. Oh, oh my God. Interesting. I That's didn't interesting. realize that, that, that he sang this actual line. Now having watched this documentary, oh my God, that lines up with the story that they told about X, Y, and Z. And so I think people are revisiting the music. And the, the streaming is only up 16%. Like, that's not huge numbers. When right. folks typically die, uh, streaming stuff goes up like 200%. So it's up, but only a small margin. You know, 16% is not a lot. Right. You know? Okay. Um, but I think people are going back for, for research purposes to understand the nuance and the true messaging of some of this music. And they're revisiting songs that they want just listen to for guilty pleasure. And now they're going back and listening to it in shock and awe. Well, you know, that makes, that's a great, you're the first person I've heard say that. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense because, you know, you think about it and just, and just because, I mean, we were almost everybody was an R Kelly fan in the nineties, particularly. I mean, it was the soundtrack of our college years and, 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 you know, early two thousands. But when you think of the song, like your mind's telling me no, but your body's telling me yes. 
I don't see nothing wrong with a little bump and grind. I'm like, oh my God, he's talking about like 13 and 14 year old little girls. This is, it's, it's, it's a horrific thing to think about that all those songs, Sex Me and 12 Play and, you know, all of his, you know, raunchier songs, um, are actually, he's talking about children. in pedophilia. Absolutely. Listen, I told one of uh, my friend Heather, uh, my friend Heather yesterday really, you know, came clean that she's having a hard time bringing herself to watch the documentary because she just doesn't want to have to face the truth about an artist whose music has been the soundtrack to her life. But she promised me that she would this week. And she said, you know, I just, I'm struggling with the idea that I may have to cut off uh, all of his music. And I'm one of those people that I can separate the art from the artist in certain aspects. For example, if I was at a party and Step in the Name of Love came on, I'm not getting off the dance floor and I'm not running to the DJ booth and asking him to take that record off. But if one of his uh, Half on a Baby Mm -hmm. uh, ignition type songs came on uh, a playlist, and now that I know the, the real meaning of the more sexualized music that he's released, I'm not as comfortable listening to that. And so for me, um, do I think artists, recording artists who he's written and produced music for should stop performing his songs? I don't believe so. I don't think uh, people should deny their fans uh, moments in their life where they're performing their hit and their songs. Um, but if anything, use it as a PSA. You know, there's one artist who I actually will be getting on the phone with later today who really wanted to have a conversation with me about that very thing. And my challenge to her is going to be, when you get to the place in your concert where you perform this big hit that this man wrote for you, maybe you need to put up on a screen the number to the domestic violence hotline, the numbers for counseling where anybody's been molested or for sex trafficking, anybody that's been going through a horrendous thing in their life or relationship or needs some help and direction. I am taking back the ownership and the meaning of this song, and I'm going to be an advocate for helping women get away from their captors now that I'm performing this song. Or and maybe, so I think or maybe people, donate money to the, from the proceeds of that song to uh, a cause or you know something like that, because I kind of feel like I'm conflicted a little bit with artists who, well, I guess the artists who already made music with him, Perhaps they can say they didn't know or they weren't sure, but I, I don't see how, didn't. right, many right many, but many did, many didn't too. And like Chance the Rapper came out and said that he regretted working with them. And he's, you know, he said that he was guilty of not really valuing the victims and, and their stories. And that was, that was probably not easy for him to do. Um, but I, I don't know how anyone in the industry moving forward could possibly work with him. Do you think R. Kelly's career is over at this point? Let me tell you, that's a hard one to predict because based on the information that I know of the things that he's done and the way that he's done them, I have believed for a long time that R. Kelly should be in prison. Absolutely. Um, Under the jail. Under the jail. uh, Absolutely. I don't know that he will ever see the inside of a prison. I do know that the parents of many of these girls and even some of the women that have been in this house, they've met with the feds. You know, the feds won't tell you when they're investigating a person. Um, I do know that, you know, the FBI and federal authorities have received an overwhelming amount of information about R. Kelly. So but they, have. they won't share with any. Yeah, they won't share with anybody mm-hmm. if they're doing anything with it. You know, we already have learned from the documentary that some of the Chicago police uh, force has been complicit as well. Yes. And helping him to 
cover up his situation because when parents and people have called for welfare checks and stuff, they call them and tip them off to the fact that we're on our way to your house to check out what's going on. So I that was do another heartbreaking that scene, by the way. That was another oh, heartbreaking was scene, by the way. There was, for those who didn't see it, there, there's a scene where the parents of one of these girls who is currently in, you know, a sex slave of his, they haven't seen her in almost three years. She's what, 19 or 20 now? She, she left when she was 17. Yes. The parents went, they flew to Chicago trying to um, do a welfare check on her at his studio, which is known as one of these sex dens, and they couldn't. They couldn't get in because the police said they didn't have probable cause to go inside. And it was heartbreaking to see them trying to trying to reach out to their daughter. And we never knew whether she was inside or not. And let me tell you, Sarah, they explained something on the documentary, but they, they left a few details out. So they talked about how R. Kelly brought them someone who he presented as uh, a representative from the record label. Right. And that they they actually signed uh, paperwork saying that this representative from the record label could oversee our daughter working on this music as long as her homework was filed. You know, the very same things the kids in Hollywood who go to work for the Disney Channel. And a lot of times when you go to work for an infrastructure like this, parents uh, have to sign guardianships to these executives or these advisors or, you know, in right. and, and, and situations like that. But So... What I am privy to is the woman that R. Kelly brought and had meet with the parents did not work for uh, the record company. Oh, she man. was his house. She was his house manager. She was a lady who tended to his house. Mm. So he took this very endearing middle-aged woman to go meet uh, with his family, and they thought that this was going to be like the tutor, the pupil, the chaperone in this situation, not knowing that they were turning their daughter just over to R. Kelly. And so that's why on her 18th birthday, her cell phone number changed, all access was cut off, because at that point, she had, he could control how she communicated with them because, right. she's legally you know, an adult 18 now. was the year yep. of cutting her parents off. It, it, it's the level wow. and the detail of his maniacal behavior really is mind-blowing. Psychologists and psychiatrists will be writing books and doing master classes on the mind of the sociopath behavior of R. Kelly. That is, um, it's, it's sad, it's frustrating, um, and it's, I just want to see justice for these women. I really do. And... You know, I'm hoping that those of us that have the platform can use it to try to do something. You know, it's one of those things where it's like I watching it. I was I went through so many different emotions. And, you know, after those last two episodes, seeing how these women are still there and and the parents and people, I'm like, what can I do? What can people do? Um, I, I think the hashtag mute R. Kelly is uh, a start. It's bringing awareness. Um, thank you to Dream Hampton and those who put this documentary out because I'm sure it was not easy to do. Um, where, where but do you... I, I agree with you. We need a call to action yes. now. There's one yes. more thing I want to uh, emphasize yeah. about this R. Kelly story. You know, the... It, Social media is both a gift and a curse. And so often in scenarios like this, uh, uh, ignorance is bliss. People love to perpetuate uh, uh, race-baiting memes and discussions of race in dynamics in which it really is not relevant. Um, I've seen so many people push forward this uh, conversation of, well, why is there a six-part documentary on R. Kelly uh, and nobody's talking about the Catholic Church? 
But the truth is, we've seen movies, documentaries, news exposés, and countless informations and stories told about the sex scandal of the Catholic Church. When you look at uh, the last, let's say, two years uh, and the Me Too movement, I can give you the list of maybe 20 powerful, rich, successful, accomplished white male men at the top of their game who were basically running aspects of this industry who have lost it all. Some have been arrested. Others have been forced into permanent retirement. Many of them will go broke paying legal fees and settlements for the rest of their lives. So, you know, this isn't like, oh, my God, society's out to get one black man. This black man was able to mistreat black girls for decades, very similarly to Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. They just happened to be two black men who got away with doing dirty deeds for longer than any of the white men who were caught up in the Me Too scandal were allowed to. Men were brought down in the Me Too scandal within days, within weeks, within months. But R. Kelly, he has continued and to, to this very day continues on abusing black girls after decades of avoiding justice. So you don't think that if there were a couple of white girls in there, that there would be swifter justice for him? As I, I Baby, if Miley Cyrus yeah. and Lindsay Lohan <laughs> were in that house, He'd have been up under the jail right. a long time right. ago. I agree. But the point that I'm making about the race discussion is, yeah. unfortunately, it is black people who are perpetuating the negative racial conversation. Yeah. And the reality is that you can't expect mainstream culture to value our black girls if you dis diminish what's happening to these black girls at the hands of this black predator. You better preach, John Murray, because that you are absolutely right. And I brought some of we touched on that a little bit with Torre um, and you just brought that point home perfectly. And with that said, uh, I want to thank you. How can people find you, John, and hear all of your wonderful insights and your perspective on things? Because you're just so much fun and informative. And um, where can people find you? Thank you so much. Listen, my mother spelled my first name like the Philly slang, so it's J-A-W-N. <laughs> uh, typically, if you start dropping that into any of your social media handles, you'll find me. So I'm at John Murray on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can find me uh, on YouTube at John Murray. And then on Facebook, it's John Murray World. So find me there. Also, check out some of my lifestyle and TV clip features also at alwaysalist.com. Fabulous. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk again soon. Anytime. Love you, baby. So after that really, two really difficult conversations about R. Kelly and just just the how just debasing it all is and just uh, awful for these women, I really, really do want to see some justice for these women. But I also think it's important to keep people informed of what they can do, how they can help victims of sexual abuse. And so for kind of, you know, I usually do a feel good story, but it's a little hard to feel good about this other than people wanting to know what, what can we do? First of all, there is the hashtag mute R Kelly effort that is out there, um, in, in, you know, social media, but it's also to put pressure on the record companies like RCA, who he is still signed with. There's an organization called Color of Change, colorofchange.org. They have a petition 
petitioning RCA to drop R. Kelly as an artist. Also, if there's any tours with R. Kelly coming to your city, please get involved to protest it, uh, that you do not want this child predator um, in your city. So there's ways to get involved with that too. But you can, um, the, the hashtag mute R. Kelly effort is something that's going on. Also, there are some really good national organizations um, that help victims of child sexual abuse. Um, one of them is called Darkness to Light, um, www.d2l.org. Um, they, they help with um, children and, and adults. They, they provide information to adults on how to prevent and, and recognize and react to child sexual abuse. It's Darkness to Light. There's another organization called the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. That's the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, which is an international organization that is dedicated to preventing sexual abuse. There's another organization called One in Six. Uh, it's oneinsix.org. The mission of One in Six is actually to help men who have been um, sexually abused, uh, especially in childhood how they can recover from that and live healthy, happy lives. Because a lot of times men don't talk about that and it has impacts. Even R. Kelly talks about how he was sexually abused as a child um, and the effects of that, not excusing his behavior. But, you know, people need to not be afraid to get help. So that's an organization called One in Six. Um, there's also uh, the National Coalition to Prevent Child Sexual Abuse and Exploitation. Um, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. So there are several, and there's also a um, sexual abuse hotline for an organization called RAIN, and I've I talked about that um, in, in another episode, but it's really important that if you know someone that's being sexually abused or is in a domestic violence situation, or if you are, please don't be afraid to reach out for help. And the number for that hotline is 800-656-4673. That's 800-656-4673. And that's the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Well, I'm going to make a hard turn to politics because um, there's just so much going on. And uh, I'm, I'm with the shutdown has still ongoing and just how it's impacting people. Uh, when we were flying back from Florida, going through TSA, down to Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale Airport, I overheard someone compliment a TSA agent who was very nice. And, you know, they said, you're doing a great job. And she said, well, thank you. Now tell your president that so I can get my paycheck. <laughs> funny, not funny, but this is going on all around the country. And Donald Trump doesn't care how this affects real people in their, their lives. So I have uh, author Michael D'Antonio uh, on, about to come on with me right now, to talk about his book, The Truth About Trump, his experiences with Trump, and just a little insight into why Trump behaves the way he does, and some of his experiences. You're going to be blown away, maybe not now that he's president, but some of the things that, that uh, Michael talks about in his interactions with Donald Trump, it's just... Uh, Unbelievable that this guy is president of the United States, but I am happy to welcome my friend and author of The Truth About Trump, and also he has a new book out about Mike Pence. It's called Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence. 
Michael D'Antonio. We're going to do politics and pop culture in this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. So um, I've been talking about the Surviving R. Kelly special, which has just been um, mind-blowing and shocking. But something else that's been mind-blowing and shocking has been the president's behavior and this government shutdown that we've been in. We're going on three weeks and counting now with no end in sight. And I'm so pleased to have someone who has spent time with Donald Trump because he wrote a book about him called The Truth About Trump. Um, and that's author Michael D'Antonio. Thank you for joining me, Michael. And you're my friend, so it's a pleasure to have the conversation and chat with you and finally get you on. What a happy thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy 2019. Yes. Uh, no, no shortage of things to talk about uh, concerning our, uh, our president, Mr. Donald Trump. Um, the reason why I wanted to have you on was because, like I said just now, you've been one of the few people who's actually sat down and spent hours talking to Donald Trump when you were writing the book on him. And I think you have a unique insight into his disposition, into his way of thinking that I think is valuable to my listeners. And bringing that insight and expertise um, to the shutdown conversation, I think, is an interesting one. Um when you were writing this book, uh, it was before Trump became president, right? What years was that? 2015 and 2016. So it was so during the campaign. As he declared, right, we were finishing up. And what were your, some of your observations at the time? Did you, did you take him seriously that he wanted to actually be president? Or did you see it as this was a, a, another branding and marketing opportunity for the, for the Trump name and that he was just using this to further his and further enrich himself? You know, I pretty ignorantly believed that it was just Mark when he first mentioned this, because at that time it was late 2013, so I put quite a bit of time into the book. Mm -hmm. And his um, pitch then was a lot of people on Twitter are telling me I should run. And <laughs> I barely, you know, and this was before people really understood how Twitter could move a population. And certainly, I knew he had lots of followers, but I didn't, didn't understand how well-tuned his Twitter presence was. And I remember going downstairs in Trump Tower in the elevator with a fellow who had accompanied me to the interview, and we both looked at each other and we almost laughed. It's like, Donald Trump's going to be president? Right. But, but now we know that Steve Bannon was already calibrating Breitbart to support him, that the Mercers were very engaged in their activities in favor of a candidate who would become Trump. They weren't in the Trump camp originally, but they went along with it wholeheartedly, and that he was quite serious about it. Just, um, just and, to and, stop and, you really quickly for context for those who don't know, the Mercers are, um, Bob Mercer is a, is a billionaire, very successful um, investment banker guy, right? Hedge funds and things like that. And yeah, he's a real billionaire. Yeah. I mean, I think we're not sure about President right. Trump, but 
The Mercers are definitely um, right. among the wealthiest families in America. Right. And they backed uh, Ted Cruz initially. And Kellyanne Conway was their main gal who ran the PACs that uh, supported Ted Cruz before they made the switch over to Trump. So just just a little context for those who don't know the history on that and the importance and the role that the Mercers played. And they also were the main financial backers for Breitbart. Continue on. And Cambridge Analytica. Yes. There are all these very interesting um, connections between the Mercer's business activities, which involved the $10 million investment in Breitbart, but also the creation of Cambridge Analytica, which Steve Bannon was the vice president of. So you see all of these early investments made in uh, activities that would yield a Republican president. They didn't necessarily think it was going to be Donald Trump, but he sure thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And when you see, as you watched everything unfold, um, I don't know if you were as horrified as I was as I saw Donald Trump gaining traction and seeing the way he was covered and the fact that he wasn't really being held to account for his history of lying and of bigotry and of terrible business practices. I mean, the fact that he was able to get away with using the fact that he was such a, quote, successful businessman as one of the traits for his, uh, you know, his candidacy and that people bought it was uh, mind blowing to me, given the fact that he had such a record of actual failure. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you used the phrase mind blowing and shocking where R. Kelly was concerned. yes. And- I felt that way every time I interviewed Donald Trump because there would be two hours of conversation followed by weeks of fact-checking because (laughs) every sentence contained a falsehood or an outright lie. But what's fascinating about it is as you're with him, you can see that he returns to the same constructed reality, these same fantasies over and over again, in a way that makes me think that he really does believe a lot of this stuff. And even if he doesn't believe it, he's learned to offer it to us as fact. So when he says, I'm worth $10 billion, and he may only be worth about $200 million, he, in the moment he says, I'm worth $10 billion, has a whole explanation in his mind about why that's true and and he's convinced himself right he's convinced himself to believe his own bullshit i guess that makes a good con artist right (laughs) well it makes for a great con artist Mm -hmm. because you really cannot catch him out he's consistent i remember we had a long conversation at one point about how barack obama really was born in hawaii and and uh, your listeners probably know that donald trump was the birther par excellence. Mm-hmm. He was long after other people had given it up and said, well, yeah, really, he is American and, and therefore American born and qualified to be president under the Constitution. Trump kept pushing this. So at one point I discussed this with him and I said, you know, your kids tell me that this bothers them. And it did bother them. And and they, they said that they talked to you about it. And he would say, well, yeah, I know, I know, but it, it works. Mm, it works. And then, and then the next time we spoke, it was as if we hadn't had that conversation. He went right back to, no, there are serious questions about where this guy was born. And we, we 
demand answers, and this is a public service I'm doing. <laughs> um, so it's it's a habit of mind that is permanent, and and I think that's what we see at work now in the White House. That when he says we've apprehended thousands of terrorists coming across the border with Mexico, when really I don't know that any terrorists have been apprehended on that border. He's believing it when he says it, and he's going to repeat it until we believe it as well. And just as a fact check on that, it's already been disproven. Uh, multiple people have come, out, have come out and said that that number, even coming from Secretary Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, when she said 3,000 and the way she said it was, was uh, very... Um, I guess they, they the way that she worded it made it seem as though they were along the southern border, which is actually not true. Most of these people who were special interest immigrants were coming through airports. Chris Wallace, mm-hmm. Chris, Chris Wallace, God bless him, one of the few real journalists over there at Fox News, took Sarah Sanders to task on this during Fox News Sunday and said, listen, <laughs> this isn't this isn't accurate. You're, most of these people are through airports, not the southern border. This is BS. And the and the White House has done nothing to correct it. Um, but yes, that is a great example because they continue to repeat it because they know well, most people aren't going to fact check them. Right. There's no investment in the truth for them. They, and this is the essence of Trump's business activity as well. So you were mentioning that so much of what was promoted about Donald Trump, the businessman, was not true. Um, he will say, I was a great builder. And in reality, he only built a handful of projects. And I actually think he may have built more golf courses than skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he branded them, and he runs buildings for others and has his name on them. So what he's very, very good at is marketing this kind of glitz and and glamour idea of Trump. Um, he, he sold himself as the living, breathing embodiment of wealth and uh, sexiness. I think he really believes that he is a sexy guy <laughs> and, and that people should... Oh. He, 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 at one point, he told his casino executives to stop bothering him about the sex scandals that he was involved with in the New York tabloids. That was a marketing thing for him. And he said, I don't care if the guys who come and gamble here have to tell their wives that they're going to another casino, but they're coming here instead, because they want to not just about um, my success, it's about my image. And it's money, beautiful women, our uh, all these signifiers that he thinks make him attractive. Well, it worked because look at how many women he was a beautiful women that he has had dalliances with, uh, albeit while cheating on his wives. Um, and ultimately that has come back to haunt him since he had to pay a couple of them off during the camp during the election, which has gotten his fixer, Michael Cohen, into a lot of trouble and potentially could get Trump into a lot of trouble. So I think the irony of that thinking that was a, an advantage for him um, coming back to possibly bite him in the ass is is not lost on me. Well, you know, he has suffered a lot um, for this aspect of, of his personality, you know, 
there were there were many years when his kids were really alienated from him because of what he did to their mother. You right. know, uh, his first wife, Ivana. his first wife, Ivana. But also, you know, Tiffany Trump saw her mother treated abysmally by Donald Trump. And they've had to, I think, work at this relationship or at least work at accepting him. I'm, I'm not sure that these human connections mean what they mean to the rest of us where Donald Trump is concerned. He's he told me, you know, if, if he's with a little kid, he runs out of patience within a few minutes and says, OK, I've had enough. Get him away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and and this was in reference to his own grandkids. Oh, for God's sakes. But that so doesn't surprise he, me. That doesn't surprise me because he's so closed off. There's, you know, we see his inability to empathize and we see his very rigid interact human interactions uh, unless it benefits him. So, I mean, that's why we always say he's a malignant narcissist. There's so many things that demonstrate that. And I think this is another example of it. But we live in the age of narcissism. Well, so that's this true. Is, and, and there have been some studies done about narcissistic tendencies in really successful people, especially very, very wealthy people who gain their wealth through promotion. And it is beneficial if your if your bottom line is your bottom line, you know, if, if right. accumulating billions of dollars and lots of attention is what you value, it helps to be a narcissist. And, and you know, if you had told somebody in 1975 that almost anyone in the world could have a presence that would be accessed by anyone else in the world, as we have with Facebook or Twitter, and that people would go on these platforms and promote themselves and present the best image of themselves, which everybody does, they would have said, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of attention is only for people in the newspaper or on TV, and, and they, those people would have been right. It was unthinkable what we have now, but Donald Trump understood this. This is an amazing thing about him is when it was tabloid newspapers, he understood that and manipulated the newspapers. When it was tabloid TV with things like uh, E! and Access Hollywood and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, he understood that and dominated that medium. He's very, very good at adapting to new technologies and putting himself front and center. And then he, he, to your point, he took advantage of reality television, which was a relatively new phenomenon when The Apprentice started. And that became, especially in primetime network television, there really weren't any shows remotely close to that. Not like the plethora of reality shows we have now all over the place. Back then, there was nothing else like that. And uh, a lot of people may not know, but uh, my boss at CNN, Jeff Zucker, was running NBC at the time, and he greenlit The Apprentice. So there, when you see a lot of that vitriol between Trump and CNN, a lot of that has to do, I think, directly with his relationship with Jeff Zucker, as feeling as though Jeff was not loyal to him, given um, their relationship back in you know the 90s and early 2000s when he gave him that shot. I think you're right, and I think your observation about The Apprentice being groundbreaking, it was. Um, And, you know, for all 
of his deficits, Trump does have a certain genius where those kinds of performances are concerned. He he built himself into this personality. Um, Mark Burnett saw something in him, and they formed this partnership, and certainly Jeff Zucker saw it. You know, they went into NBC. I remember being told that they actually determined what the contest was going to be about in the green room before going on the Today Show. They didn't quite know what the show was, and they devised it on the spot, and it was brilliant. Um, A lot of editing had to be done to make it coherent because the president does have trouble stringing more than a couple of sentences together in a coherent way. Yes, we've witnessed that (laughs) every day. That's what editing is for, right? yeah. Too bad they can't do that for uh, his press his press briefings and things like that. Believe me, if they could, they would. But Trump is uh, incorrigible in that respect, and we get to see that in that raw, um, just unintelligible stream of consciousness often that spews out of his mouth. We see this uh, often, and it's scary as hell when you're president of the United States. I don't care what you say when you're a reality TV sh- star. There's no consequences, but when you're president of the United States, the consequences are really serious. <laughs> well, but it is sort of compelling television, and that's what, again, the genius of Donald Trump is. He, he wants you to watch him. He doesn't really care why you're watching. Right, And I, I think that he believes that over time, he's going to make the sale. And, and the, the truth is, in his experience, a great many people buy what he's offering. So if well, you're clearly, him, he's a wealthy guy. Right. You know, he may not be a ten, worth ten billion, but he's he, you know he's not hurting either. He sure as, sure as hell can't relate to government workers who are not being paid for working, as he claimed over the weekend, which was a ridiculous statement. Um, maybe he can relate to workers working and then not getting paid, since that's what he did to many people who worked for him, like small businesses and contractors in Atlantic City, who he screwed out of uh, lots and lots of money when he was in, in Atlantic City and other places. But that's about as close to relating, I think, he can come to uh, the average American who has to pay a mortgage or a car payment. I think you're right. You know, think about those people who scraped up thousands of dollars to attend what was called Trump University Mm. and and how he did settle with them when they sued and had to pay twenty five million dollars. But along the way, a lot of those folks really suffered for the loss of that money. I I spoke with a father and son. Uh, The son was a bus driver. The father was retired. And together they paid $36,000 to attend attend Trump University classes. That's like a year's salary. Yeah. And they thought, well, you know, we're going to go into real estate and and it's going to be a lot easier than driving a bus and uh, living on Social Security and we'll be little Donald Trump's. And when it was over, what they got was a certificate and they were allowed to stand next to a cardboard cutout picture of Donald Trump and have their photo taken. Oh, my gosh. I remember I... when all that came out during the campaign. And it was amazing to me how many of his supporters just dismissed that. 
as if it weren't a big deal. And I was screaming from the rooftops saying, here is a microcosm of what this guy does. The fraud that was Trump University is the fraud that he is selling the American people to get him elected. Don't you people see this? <laughs> and and people just were like, they didn't care. They didn't care. No, and, but, and I think that there is a, a an element of magical thinking that people have where they attach themselves to this leader, you know, and, and Trump is a person who's appealed to voters on a level that I don't think any other politician, national politician has ever attempted. And it's more authoritarian. It's more visceral mm -hmm, for sure. It's, and it's, it's us against them. Now, I, I think we're all part of, the problem that led up to this of polarization, you know, being too quick to criticize the other side, and whether you're more liberal or more conservative, the atmosphere has not been good for a long time. But <laughs> yeah. there, there is a level that he descended to. Um, it, I, I hate to keep recalling things that he told me, but I remember... No, please, one please do. <laughs> one, there was one conversation that I had with him, and I said, you know, it seems like everything is more extreme in the media with every passing day. And he said to me, yes, and you have to be willing to go there if you're going to be heard. Mm. So there was, there is no limit to where he'll go. Um, and that's the thing that I think we were shocked by during the election, it, you know, these terrible names that he called people. And this the line that he crossed when he started saying that he wanted to put Hillary Clinton in prison. Right. You know, that's something that's done in authoritarian regimes. You know, the the head man in Egypt, we, Scott Pelley interviewed him on 60 Minutes recently. LCC. Right. He's put his predecessor in prison. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens in those countries. It yep. doesn't happen yep. in the United States. We don't talk about that right. because it's too dangerous. But it became a refrain during his campaign. And very few, I don't know, you would know better than me, did people in the Republican Party say, Stop it. No, no, not not vocally enough. I mean, there were some voices, you know, the Bill Crystals of the world and the Charlie Sykes, the never Trumpers like myself. Uh, we did, despite the fact that we couldn't stand Hillary Clinton and we thought she was God awful and nobody wanted to see her as president. But we also understood that you cannot run around claiming you're going to jail your political opponents. That is very un-American. Um, and we were vocal about that. But the visceral hatred for Hillary Clinton on the Republican side overshadowed all of all of the common decency and, and conventional wisdom of running a campaign, unfortunately, that they, well, they so there, just there, went out the window. There was a bit of a perfect storm there. Then. Yes. So you, you had a base that was ready mm -hmm. to go along with all of this, uh, predisposed. And then you had a guy who was willing to exploit that. Um, I mean, just look at his behavior during the, the, the debates. No one had ever seen anything like that. He broke every rule of decorum. 
I, right. I mean, it was right. pretty. He, I mean, I think he even threatened to put her in. He said, "You, you should be, you would be in jail during one of the debates." He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And I mean, this and I mean, is... I was like, I was horrified. But again, for the casual observer, right? We, we're, those of us that are in politics or in the media, we live and breathe this stuff, and we understand the nuances and and the the um, parts of this that are dangerous and and shouldn't be permitted. The casual viewer is watching this the average american who's just, you know goes through life not living and breathing this stuff is watching this almost like a, a, a reality show and being entertained by it and i called it the jerry springerization of our politics and the dangers of that were playing out in front of us well and the the strange thing is to think about where it might go next right it's it's pretty terrifying but your observation about how people don't necessarily follow this on a daily basis is very important because even with the issue of the wall or the shutdown, which is directly related to the wall, most people aren't following this. That's um, true. People have a, a set idea about who they imagine the federal workers to be, and they think, well, I, I don't make as much as those federal workers, which is not necessarily true, but they imagine that federal workers are somehow uh, enjoying these cushy lies. They don't have empathy for those folks. And if Trump says, oh, hold on, stay with me, I'm going to get that wall built, that's enough. It, it's yeah. It's and and I think they may not focus again on politics until 2020. Uh, so or until it affects them, because a lot of people have asked me, "How are we going to get out of this impasse?" And I've been, you know, I've been around in politics through several shutdowns, all the way back to when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, and we had that shutdown under Bill Clinton. It went on for a couple of weeks. Um, I remember that, you know, but there were there was a political calculation and there were political risks that were uh, assessed about allowing this to go on for so long. And those rationales don't apply in this situation with Trump. He's he, he's running on a set of different rules here. But I think that the only movement we're going to see is when the average folks start to be impacted by the shutdown and they realize, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean there's only one TSA station open when I'm trying to go through the airport and it's going to take me two hours to go through security because TSA mm -hmm. agents have called in sick because they're not getting paid and haven't been for weeks. You know, like when things like that start to um, get more focus and more attention, especially in the news, then I think you're going to start to see some movement because Trump's not going to be able to get away with just saying that, oh, these federal workers are just nameless bureau bureaucrats who all agree with me. No. People are going to be like, we don't give a shit. We need to get through airport security. We need our, you know, our food stamps to live. You know, we need to, you know, what do you mean Coast Guard, Coast Guardsmen aren't getting paid? What do you mean the Secret Service and Border Patrol, who's supposed to be, you know, Border Patrols who we're talking about here, they're not getting right. paid either? Right. Like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> well, and, and starting January 15th, every day that goes by, uh, social security, I mean, uh, income tax refunds are going to be delayed. Right. That's another big one. People depend on those check, those they refund do. checks. They do. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there are a great many Trump core voters who do use food stamps or sure. are 
looking forward to their tax refunds. And they're not people who can go a month without. You know, the average American is just a few paychecks away from losing their car or losing their house. Absolutely. It's just not something that people can endure forever. Um, but I think, you know, the previous longest shutdown was 21 days. And I think given the president's penchant for winning, he's going to go to at least 22 days. That's right, because it has <laughs> to be a record. Everything is the biggest, the longest, the most beautiful, the, you know, what most widely attended. I mean, it's it's laughable at this point because you just roll your eyes every time you hear him make those statements. Like, nobody gives a shit about breaking the record for the longest freaking government shutdown. Like, no one cares but you. It's just, it's sick. It's a very twisted way of living your life and it's just i mean we laugh but it's to stop you from crying because the guy is in charge of our nuclear codes but but he is looking forward to 2020 and he wants to be able to stand at a rally and say when i was demanding the wall i conducted the longest shutdown in history they never saw such a shutdown yeah it's the, you know and exactly that being able to deliver that line is more important to him than any of the issues that would bother you and me. And again, in this age of marketing, you know, this stuff turns into votes. It turns into money. It's amazingly powerful. And I think we don't, we won't be able to cope with this without understanding that and using some of the similar methods to counteract it. Mm-hmm. You wrote an op-ed last month for CNN.com where you said that Trump's dream world is turning into a hellscape. And you talked about the dangers of his hubris and the limits of his fakery. Talk a little bit about that. What inspired that? Well, I think there are limits. I think when you see the cabinet emptying out, when you see people in the military who even enlisted people who were in Trump's base the polls done by Stars and Stripes are showing that they're starting to have doubts about him. Um, Yes, there are lots of people standing firm, but I think that in the heartland, in places, for example, that Elizabeth Warren is visiting now. Right, Iowa. She is a person with her own problems. Um, Matt Lewis, uh, the columnist, wrote about how he felt that she wasn't likable right. you know that's well a, he's not wrong i know matt he's, well, a good, he's a friend and he's not wrong yeah. he caught a lot of shit for it because of her being a woman they're trying to level sexism about the likability issue but i think that's overblown well no you're i think it's overblown too and i the think that's part of it she does have um problems i'm i doubt she's going to be the nominee but i think that she is identifying people and issues that matter in and, and to talk a little bit about what the Democrats did wrong, the first thing they did wrong was they didn't pay attention to rural America and they mm-hmm. didn't pay attention to the industrial Midwest. Yep. And the the problems that those people suffer are still there. Trump hasn't fixed them. Um, He's exacerbated in fact, it in some places. 
you know, yeah. I mean, with the tariffs and, you know, the, the these trade wars that are going on. I mean, you have farmers in Iowa and steel workers and manufacturers and in the Midwest who are going, whoa, hold on a second here. We can't compete if you cut off these markets in Asia, especially to China, soybean farmers and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And Trump just, um, you know, he doesn't talk about the impacts of that. He just keeps talking in these platitudes, yet it's actually really hurting our farmers in the Midwest. And so is his immigration rhetoric. We've got crops that are rotting and, you know, things that are going unpicked in, in our far, in our agricultural sector because we have not solved the the worker issue with immigrants coming over here that usually occupy those jobs. That's where the focus should be is fixing that guest worker programs and things like that. That would be real policymaking. But Trump uses immigration as a foil because he knows it riles people up. I don't think he really wants to solve the problem. He doesn't want the wall actually built or he doesn't want that security issue um, handled because then he's not going to have a foil anymore to point to to get people riled up. That's my belief. I think you're right. I think it's it would be useful to him through 2020 if he seeks re-election, if he gets that far. You know, I don't think, you know, speaking of that, that uh, there should be a quick move to impeach him. I think that would be a tragic mistake. I think... Nancy Pelosi is smart enough to recognize that. But I actually wonder if he's going to have the the stomach to run for re-election. Mm, that's interesting. Um, he does not want to um, be a loser, especially in a presidential campaign, especially as an incumbent. And as things pile up, and to go back to that hellscape idea – his prospects are worse today than they were when he took office by a lot. And the Democrats haven't begun. They haven't held one hearing yet mm-hmm. to examine his record. And once that starts, it's going to be a scandal a week. So uh, I could imagine, and I really think, given what I know about his personality, this is more likely than not. I can imagine him determining that, it's better for me to go and if not resign, at least decline to run again than to subject myself to the embarrassment of all these investigations or to compromise my business interests or to put my children at risk. You really think that you really think that he would walk away from it? I don't know. I think he's so entrenched. We talk about this a lot amongst ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, I, I don't know if he has the um, because he should. I think he's going to be embroiled up to his, you know, his quaff in 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 controversy. Um, But I he's not I don't know if he would do the right thing and walk away from it. I think he would drag the country through it because he likes being a victim. Well, I don't think he has concern for what the country's going to go through. Well, I think well, you're right. He, give a shit about he, he wouldn't step down because of the strain on the nation. Right. But if he saw the fortune falling out of his hands, if he saw that there was nothing to leave behind in the Trump empire, if Donald Jr., who I think expects to be indicted, were to be indicted, um, this could stop him. This could give him pause uh, because there is a there is a point. Yeah, but he could just he, pardon him. He could, but who who wants to put their kid through all of this? He, he'd have to be convicted before he could be right. pardoned. Right, and he could be 
out of office by the time a trial ends. So he's he's I am sure he's thinking about this already. He, he this is the master of the escape hatch. He he's always keeping options open. And I think the option of declaring victory and walking away is one of them. Interesting. Uh, I, I think you're one of the few people who thinks that. But I'm going to keep an eye on it. I mean, you, given your um, experience with him, I, I think that's a, a, a valuable observation. We'll see. There's another. Well, we're point. not in. We're not in in territory we've been in before. That's so. for sure. That's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> who the hell knows? I say that all the time when people ask me questions like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "I don't." Who the hell knows? I mean, it, no. it, anything goes at, at any point. Um, in the few minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you a couple, two more things. You you've been one of the few people who's made some observations about Melania Trump and her role in all of this. Um, and I think that for some people, they were looking at her as almost like a hostage in this whole story with Donald Trump. But more recently, we've kind of seen a little bit more of her and heard more from her. And I think she's becoming a less sympathetic figure to some. I've never felt that way. I I, I think that she's got some nerve to be upset or have an attitude about being first lady when, you know, she could have been milking goats in Slovenia. And she's now, you know, a billionaire's wife and the first lady of the United States which is quite the uh, quite an honor. So I have like zero patience for her. But um, just talk a little bit about what, what you've seen as far as the kind of the uh, evolution of the Melania Trump mystique. Oh, I think you're right that she's not an innocent. She's not a person who fell into this by accident. She knew who Donald Trump was when they got together. In fact, he was married to somebody else. So you know, yeah. they, there, there is a, there's a basic rule that if he's going to go with you when he's married to somebody else, watch out. And he has betrayed her um, in ways that are just appalling. Um, so I don't think that she's an innocent. I don't think that she's trapped there. I think she made her deal. Um, and as First Lady, it's been kind of shocking to me that she'll see what's happening at the border. She knows, for example, that two kids have died in federal custody in the last couple of months. Prior to that, that hadn't happened in 10 years. So it, it, I don't think it's enough to wear a jacket that says, I don't care, do you, on mm -hmm. the back of it. I, and I don't think it's enough to travel to Africa and wear nice clothes. Right, and do like uh, a faux Vogue photo shoot while you're there. Like, come on. You know, at least George right. W. Bush and Laura Bush, when they went there, they were there with a real purpose. You know, George W. Bush doesn't get enough credit for the the billions of dollars that he sent to Africa and PEPFAR funding to help with AIDS in Africa and the impact that that had positively there, you know. Those are real substantive things or, you know, Michelle Obama's work and what she did. However, whatever criticism you have about Michelle Obama, and then you kind of compare that to what Melania Trump is doing. And it's just like, really, you know, be best. You're an anti-bullying advocate. What a laughing stock that is. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you don't want to be cruel in your response to someone because this cruelty that Donald Trump uh, practices is a big problem. It's it's what we need to get away from. But 
come on. Right, you know, right. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? I, I mean, no, no. How are you supposed to take that seriously? When the bully, well, you know, the, the biggest bully, the bullier in chief is your husband. Right. This is gaslighting. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is the first lady's version of gaslighting. Correct. I'm an anti-bullying <laughs> crusader. Yeah. I mean, and the other part of it is where is the follow through on any of it? Right. Right. I, uh, there, there is no apparent follow through. Um, I think she's expressed herself mainly by when she accompanies the president and when she doesn't, whether she flicks his hand away or not when he reaches for her. Right. That pe- people read that as if they're criminal criminologists uh, looking at <laughs> at the walls of of the palace to see what they can discern from. The movement in the behind the windows. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that yes, she gets a pass on all of this uh, when she's one of the most prominent people in the world and should be standing for decency in a way that we notice and can appreciate. I think she's getting that uh, a less and less of a pass, and I think that that's warranted. You know, she she is not above a reproach just because she's beautiful and well dressed. Um, no. <laughs> you know, uh, and neither, neither are we. That's right. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you because you have a, a new book out and it's about the vice president and it's called the shadow president, the, the truth about Mike Pence. And, uh, you know, Mike Pence is pretty non-existent most of the time. Um, he's nowhere to be found. He's ghosts during like the largest, uh, controversies most of the time. Uh, you, where is Mike Pence? Where in the world is Mike Pence? Um, but when it comes to some legislative issues, things like the shutdown, then you see him because he was a congressman, he was a governor. So he does understand Washington. He does have allies mm-hmm. in Congress. So, you know, Trump trots him out when he needs to, um, to play a little bit of a role. But every time he does this, he emasculates Mike Pence in ways that shouldn't be legal. I mean, this guy, I don't know where his balls are, but they are certainly <laughs> not intact. Okay. The way he lets Donald Trump treat him. Um, and in the shutdown, he's in negotiations. He says one thing and then Trump comes out in a tweet and undermines the whole thing. Do you, in your research for the book and your interactions and what you needed to do to write the book for Pence, do you think that he, <sighs> Is it just blind political ambition that's allowed him to, to be emasculated like this? Does he think that he's going to end up being the de facto president because Trump is going to implode? Like, just tell us a little bit about Mike Pence, because he's pretty much a mystery to most people who don't follow Washington politics. Well, I would say yes and yes. <laughs> he, he thinks that he's going to wind up president, and he has far more ambition than people recognize. Now, this is true about everybody in Washington. You know, I think, what do they say? You know, you're a senator when you look in the mirror in the morning and see a future president. So everybody <laughs> thinks that they're going to be president. Um, Mike, when he was in high school, started telling people that he was going to be president. And if we know the biographies of a lot of people, maybe uh, Donald Trump is an exception. That's a pretty common thing. A lot of supremely ambitious politicians settled on uh, their dream early in life and devoted themselves to pursuing it. In Mike's case, one of the big differences is that he presents himself as somebody who is not that. He wants you to believe that he's 
this very humble, very re- reserved, um, very Christian in a certain way that, you know, kind of meek and mild. And that is what we see when he's around the president. Um, I sometimes look at him and I, f- I think to myself, who bullied you yeah. when you were a kid? Yeah. How, did you, how did you learn to collapse the way that you collapse? And, and he is so good at pleasing Donald Trump. He, he, it's kind of eerie to watch. He, he really is. does almost That's a good he description. melts away. That's a good description. <laughs> it is eerie. It, it's creepy. It's eerie. It seems pathological. That's, that's, that's an interesting thing to say who bullied you when you were younger, that he learned how to just melt away to kind of protect himself from getting further hurt, you know? And that wife well, of his, oh my goodness, she's, you know, m- mother uh, Pence over there. Uh, that that whole thing is just, it. it's, and I hear that she's actually not a very nice person um, on the inside, from the people on the inside around them, that she's pretty rigid. She's very tough. Yeah. Um, when, in the 90s, Mike decided to step away from politics, and he was a broadcaster before Donald Trump was. That's right. He, fashioned himself after Rush Limbaugh, although he was the nice one. He, he was the nice Rush Limbaugh, mm-hmm. assertive, but, but pleasant and polite. It was Karen who kept the political fire burning. She did fundraisers for people running for office. She stayed connected to everybody. And when the moment was right in the year 2000, she was the one who pushed him forward. Uh, and I think... She's appalled by Donald Trump, but I, she shares her husband's ambition. She may be more ambitious than he is. Very house and, of cards. Very house yeah, of cards, it, just with less attractive it, people. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, it, I, I, Mike is the kind of person you almost feel sorry for, and then you realize that in so many moments he doesn't do the right thing. Right. You know, even when he was governor— there were, for example, there was an HIV outbreak among drug users in rural Indiana. And the sheriffs in those communities said, look, we have to do an emergency needle exchange because this is all caused by IV needle sharing and it's, it's running wild. And he dawdled. It took him months to make this decision. So there were people who died. Literally, people died because Mike was afraid to say, I'm going to step in and do something about this HIV outbreak. Um, And he hides behind his Christian faith, which is what upsets me oftentimes to justify some of these things. And, um, you know, as a Christian... I am embarrassed by the evangelical community's embrace of Donald Trump and their justification of certain things that are just really not biblical. Um, and, and I, you know, Mike Pence's um, uh, lapdog behavior with Trump and just the way that he's conducted his political life, I, it upsets me, too. And I don't like that he uses his, you know, hides behind his religion. No, and it, it's, a, it's very selective. Right. You know, their idea of what... Christ was about um, too often seems to look like Donald Trump, or you know, there's this yeah. idea that's almost um, restricted to the Old Testament, where they are very mean spirited in their approach to others, um, 
very judgmental, very much about control. And I don't think that that leads a country that's diverse and pluralistic as ours is to a place of progress and harmony. And and I don't mean progress in terms of progressivism. I just mean, you know, advancing all of our interests, um, not just one group. Yeah. Well, um, you, got, I, you know, most people will probably think, oh, who wants to read a book about Mike Pence? But you know what? It's 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 fascinating to see uh, someone like this and, and to have insight into someone like that. And I would encourage people to pick up your book, The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence, um, to kind of get an idea of uh, what we're dealing with with the number two spot. We got a lot going on with the president, but there's some stuff going on there with the vice president, too, that should be of interest to to everyone. Um well, thank you for joining me, Michael. I appreciate it. And um, my give give my love to, to your wife, Tony. She's she's lovely. And uh, I will see you. I will. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And I will see you on the airwaves over at CNN, even though I'm in D.C. now, so I don't get to see you as often. But um, but we'll 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 cross paths. <laughs> Thanks, Tara. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Talk soon. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Stay tuned for next week's episode next Tuesday and every Tuesday. We'll have new episodes and it's a new year, so there'll be plenty to talk about. You can find me on social media at Honestly underscore Tara on Twitter or at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. So be sure to tweet at me and talk to me, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, ask me questions, topics, people potentially you'd like me to interview. I'm very interactive on, on social media with my fans, so I look forward to hearing from you, and stay tuned. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.